just a real quick reading out of a out of a book that I just absolutely love. Of course, I love them all, right? But First John is a book that was written um, in a time when there was really a, a very similar things. I think dis discord and and apostasy and. Um, it was written when the church was still quite young and the people still did not have all the firm knowledge that they needed to have. And um, I think one of the challenges of the recipients of this book, as we've seen, has been the fact that they are so new in this faith, they have not t totally come to understand the freedom that they had in this newfound uh, covenant that putting aside the old and moving into the new. We, our pastor preached out of Acts yesterday, and one of the things he, he covered was that, that first encounter where the apostles came toe-to-toe -to -toe with one another, and they, dis, they had a disagreement about whether or not people had to be circumcised if they were going to enter into the new covenant or not and be uh, partakers, basically, or recipients of salvation. And uh, Paul, of course argued against it and he they all then had to go to the council in Jerusalem that was that first off opportunity of of taking a stand together and trying to hash it all out and figure out what was true in this new covenant and it was really a delight to me because as I watched uh, that story again as I went back and reread that with Pastor Rob I thought you know this is a lot what was going on with the Hebrew believers as well they were still struggling to figure out the reality of this new faith walk they had. And so I want to read to you just a little bit in First John because I think it kind of lays it out also, but it says it slightly different. And sometimes when you just hear it slightly different, but it's still kind of the same message, it just kind of hits you a little differently. So I want to read um, out of First John chapter 2 just for a few verses here. In verse 1 of chapter 2, First John, My little children... I am writing these things to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for sins, and not ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, this was definitely an issue with the new believers as well. It was coming to understand that this was for the whole world and not just for the Jewish nation. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments right? So does that not fit in with what we're looking at in Hebrews at this point, this idea of, of the necessity to actually live what you say you believe in and to live it out in a way which honors God. So those who know him, if you actually, if you actually know him, you are to keep his commandments. In Hebrews, can you think of a couple of verses that give that same if caveat? Can you remember? Yeah, I know. It's okay. it's okay. Look it up. Look it up. I think it's in 6, um, verse 6, 6, and then verse uh, 14, right? Am I correct? Let me go back and I'll look it up too because I want to make sure as we make these applications to what we're looking at. No, it was in uh, 4. Nope. 5. There you are. Okay, and that verse is where? 314. Okay, 314. But now back up to 36. It also says it there. 
Okay, in both of those statements, there's an if caveat that says basically, he's not saying it's how you're getting saved. He's saying that you are saved if you are doing these things. And if you are not doing these things, then the question might be posed, are you? It's, it is, he is not making an absolute judgment about their salvation individually. He is simply posing before them a, a consideration to examine themselves and to say, am I doing the things which should be evident, should be present in the life of a believer? He, he follows both of his really difficult passages in chapter 6 and 10 where he's challenging um, the believers in, in such a way that it almost sounds like it's, it's, a, it's a, a doom and you know, damnation kind of a, a verse. But he follows both of those in 6 and 10 with, with an if again, and he says, but... I believe of you better things, things which accompany salvation. So he goes on to actually give them a, a, a pep talk that he believes that they are in faith and that he believes that they will do the things which are appropriate. So 1 John is really following the same kind of idea. And he says, and, and we know that we have come to know him if we are keeping his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. Now, that's pretty, that's pretty direct statement. He's calling him on the carpet and saying, you can't call yourself a Christian, but habitually live in a way which does not portray that you are and still, still feel that you can sit back and be comfortable where you're at. You have to make an, a, an adjustment here or you have to examine yourself to say whether or not you are or you are not in faith. The one who says, I've come to know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar. The truth is not him, in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought also himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you. So he's, he's in, indicating, he says, he understands there's been a change in venue. There's been a change in covenant. But the old covenant, the new covenant are really the same thing. The only thing that's new about it is the newness of it in Jesus Christ, where he has brought the fulfillment of the promises, and he has placed now the Spirit within them, and the obedience to the law is no longer by the letter of the law, but by the Spirit. And he says... Um, the one who says he's in, in light and yet hates his brother is in darkness until now. I'm going to stop with that. I want you to go back if you, if you feel interested. He goes on in, in 1 John later and he, say, he says basically, I am writing all these things to you in 1 John, all of these chapters. I am writing to you that you may know that you have eternal life. There is a way that we can approach God and not be saved and say we are and show up at church every week and check the boxes and kind of look good on the outside. But the way to God, and this is what Hebrews is going to show us here, which I love. Hebrews is showing us that the only way to God, the only way to, to ha be made right with God is through the blood of the covenant, of the new covenant, which is Jesus Christ. And apart from that, no one is, is perfected. 
Did you see how verse or chapter 11 closed? And what, did, was that kind of a little complicated verse for you? And at the end there, how he phrases, all, all these things have gained approval through their faith, or all these who have gained approval through their faith, but uh, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Now, we're going to try to iron that out a little bit better, but if you only consider the fact that uh, there is only one way to be made perfected, what has this author up to this point pressed really hard into these believers as concerning the sacrifices of the old versus this new system? The superior, that Jesus is something better. So when you saw that something better in verse 40, that should include you in about that contrast, right? And when you say it's something better, the contrast then is he's comparing it to what they had in the, their old system, right? And at this point, when we get to this place in chapter 11, he's saying they were waiting for that something better and never received it. But now what? But now we have, we have received it, that something better has come. And the distinctive difference between the two systems was demonstrated in the temple. A couple weeks back, we looked at the temple itself, the veil, and what it represented. And it said, as long as the veil was there, what? What was that to convey to them? What was the message? There's a separation between man and God. There's not that, that freedom to enter into his presence yet through the entire old system. Think about that. All those years they had the temple before them. Who could enter into the Holy of Holies? Only the priest. And how often? Once a year. And was there not a huge system in place for him to go and do that so that he himself would not enter in there and die, right? And so what we see then is the, the temple, the old system of the temple had a, was a picture. It, and its purpose was to show man that there was still not a way into the presence of God made available. When was that broken for man? Where, at what point in history? Oh, I mean, we, at what point in history was relationship with God broken so that man did not have access to presence with him? Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Prior to their sin, they had, they had access. God would walk with Adam in the garden, it said. And, and once sin entered in, then there became a, a separation between them. And we're going to go back and look at that just a little bit this morning. I hope we have time anyway to kind of look at that storyline to see how that is so beautifully shown to us right from the very beginning so that by the time we come all the way through history and we hit this section that we're looking at in, in Hebrews where we're seeing now the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to man concerning rectifying the separation and now we're going to see that it's been fulfilled and that that it, that it was what they had always been waiting on and that what what they were waiting for is now here and so he's showing that to them through the progressive faith of the people that we are looking at in Hebrews chapter 11 their faith is demonstrated how what does it what is their faith what did you see as you looked in Hebrews 11 they were believing, and how was that demonstrated? Obeying. Obeying, Obeying was, was one way, and trusting him, I hope. Continuing on, persevering, 
year after year after year after year after year waiting for God to do it and believing that he would? There you go. Acting on it. Actually taking those steps of faith and, and doing the things which, which put their faith and trust in God that he was going to do exactly what he said. Okay, so now, today's homework, we are not going to get into a lot of very deep things concerning Hebrews. That's going to be safe for next week when she is going to take us on a journey to, um, into something that's analytical. She says in her homework instructions for next week, you're not actually doing a topical study. But I think that's a little bit confusing. And I don't want you all to be confused about your homework. Um, it is kind of a topical study. She's asking us, starting next week, to go back through all the way to the beginning of Hebrews and run through the entire chapter, or, or all the chapters, all, all the way to the end of Hebrews, and look to see everywhere that faith and believing is mentioned, accumulate information about that, and then draw some analytical conclusions about that. Okay, so she's wanting you to go to the analytical, but you have to start with the fundamentals first, which is you're doing a topical observation. So you are going to topically look at the word faith and believe through the whole book of Hebrews. You're going to accumulate your information, and then you're going to draw some conclusions. And if we have time at the end of our lesson, I am going to give you a demonstration of that. And just in case we don't have enough time, I have on my chart that will go out to you a demonstration of of that so that you can see what it is that she's actually wanting from you. It's a little complicated for people who have not done analytical observation. It's a higher level of learning. It is the next step in inductive process. Once you learn the fundamentals of finding your key words and marking them, making a list on them, now, t now going to the next step, and that is topically look at it throughout the whole book that you're in, the, you know, those are just I would call those the simple steps of doing inductive processing. But the next step after that is, once you've done that, now draw some conclusions by asking some deeper questions. So concerning faith, what does that demonstrate? What do we see is going on in the life of a person who has faith? What is the expectation of God concerning our faith? Should there be concern if there are certain things missing about a person's faith. And is that being judgmental? And quite honestly, we, we do know that the first step in this is this is for us, right? It's for personal observation. But is there also value sometimes in looking around and observing people so that um, you can maybe draw a conclusion about their faith? What, what might be a value in knowing where somebody actually stands? Okay, you could come alongside them. What if they think they are saved? They're certainly giving the, 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 the lip service that they're saved. They say they are. But what if they're not living it? And you're looking at that person's life and you are concerned. What if they don't really? What if, like back in chapter 4, he says, at least some of you miss entering into the rest of God? Is that not something that we should be concerned about as the body of Christ? As we look around, not to be judgmental, not to criticize, not to draw people down, but rather to exhort them, right, to make sure that they actually are in the faith. And if they're simply immature, 
then according to Hebrews, what is the challenge next? Press into maturity, right? Not remain babies. By now, he says of these believers, what? They should be teachers, but they're not. So this particular book is filled with all these exhortations, he calls them. But it's a mixture of teaching, of of, uh, rebuking, of training, of um, really holding the fire to the feet of people and saying, look, if you, if you are claiming to be in faith, then you should be holding fast. And if you aren't holding fast, then you need to examine yourself to see whether or not you're actually in the faith. So this book is really loaded with some, I think, some hot topics. People don't often like to really think about them. It makes them uncomfortable, particularly those who have mercy gifts and you know, they tend to go, don't pick on somebody. It's like, well, yes, but what is Hebrews doing? What is this author doing? He is really challenging this church to say, if in fact you're in faith, you need to walk in a manner that's worthy of, the, of your calling. There needs to be evidence in your life daily that, that the commitment that you say you have made, that you are living it out. And what happens when hard things come into your life, when you are challenged morally to make a decision? How do you handle it? What do you do with it, right? Pardon? Yeah, and what if you don't know the word? Because nobody in your world around you, once you came into faith, bothered to train you up in the word. Then what? There has to be, to me, there has to be some kind of a motivation that makes you want to go and be trained up in the Word of God, right? So, the, and, and the body of Christ, God did not save us and put us as an island somewhere. He does desire that we come into the fellowship. What has he said as he closes chapter 10 about that, about fellowshipping or about assembling? Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. Why? You, you can't do it alone, and you shouldn't do it alone? Okay. I like it. Okay, see, we hit both sides. There's accountability by coming into the assembly, and there's encouragement. Iron sharpens iron. That's a good one. Iron sharpens iron. So w- when you think about the book of Hebrews, tell me where you are at this point in your understanding about this book. How, are you feeling a little bit m- more confident and what do you think about this book? I just want to kind of hear some I think it's challenging. It is a cha- why do you think it's challenging? It makes you examine yourself. Okay. So it makes you personally uncomfortable because it's actually pointing out some things, huh? Okay. Okay. Mentor or minister or witness to these people, and I always find. 
find that learning something is so good because I can share it with my friends that I find that are beyond, not even in the room at all, or not even in the sound bay, but people that just say they know God and mm-hmm. don't want to ever get into it. Yeah. That, does, that, does that confuse anybody when you meet a Christian who has no interest in being in the Word at all? Does that kind of, a, almost like an oxymoron, it's like, wait a minute, you say you're a Christian, but you don't, you don't love God's Word at all, and you're not interested. It, it is confusing, yes. Mm-hmm. What might be some reasons people get there? Yeah, yeah, I've heard that one. I've already studied that book before. I don't need to do it again. <laughs> okay. My, a lot smarter than me, I can tell you that, because every time I study, I learn new stuff, and God refreshes it. And you need that refreshing, yeah. My impression after, uh, after studying Hebrews over and over is that it gives you the full plan of God so clearly. And, you know, how, how I wouldn't say so clearly, but, <laughs> but yes, he does give us the full plan. He does. Yeah. Faithfulness of God's promises, and it enables you to hold your confidence for that which is yet to come. Okay. And okay. What about what about the various kinds of subjects that come in concerning salvation? Have you noticed how this book interweaves justification, sanctification, and glorification issues? And he, and he really never stops to clarify which one he's saying at the moment. The context of each verse is what's supposed to tell you what he's saying. And he, he, does he seem to have an expectation that you understand there's a distinction yes. between working, working out your faith, uh, which in our world today seems to get confused with working for your faith, right? <laughs> working for salvation, which is not true, right? But yet this book often speaks about works, does it not? So when you, this works of faith, right? And even when you enter enter into Hebrews 11, as we say, you know, uh, it defines for us what what faith is, but then it goes on to say that by faith they did this. In other words, a person, though, that's not trained in the Word of God and does not know the distinction between justification, sanctification, and glorification, they could very easily say, oh, because they did this, they have faith. Can you, could you see how that could be a mistaken perception on the parts of people? Do you think that happens a lot in our churches yet today? Where so many, okay. So as we consider all these things, what I love is, is I do think that, that we are being pressed in maturity and we are being challenged to um, dissect and to discern and to draw the line between our understandings doctrinally. Almost every verse and almost every chapter we hit, we have to say, okay, what subject is this that he's talking about here? You know, when you're back in chapter 8, 9, and 10, you're talking about the blood of the covenant and its work. What is that speaking of? Which term? Justification. That's the work that accomplished your salvation, right? But then when you hit after 10, now we're in 11, and now it's talking about faith that, that is uh, being demonstrated by various kinds of activities. 
And in that case, what subject are we now into? Sanctification. Did you all notice the distinct? I, I bring that up today because I do think that even, even amongst our very well-trained precept students, sometimes we can slip in not making ourselves just pay attention to that point, and then we end up getting confused about what we're looking at sometimes. And it's, it's just a matter of training yourself through this, this system of inductive processes of learning to look for and saying, what subject are we on now? What is he emphasizing here, and what is his purpose? Kay is going to with next week's homework, asked you to go through the whole book of Hebrews then. Look at the subject of faith. Make your list. I still call it a, a, a topical study. You're going to topically list everything you can about the subject of believing in faith. And it's going to be t a little tough because you're going to have to hone it down to a few words, not a whole page of information. And that's hard to do. Um, which means it's going to be very, very time-consuming. So I actually, I'm really happy that we're not here next week because, honestly, I think you need two weeks to do this week's homework if you're going to do it really thoroughly. Start out by just doing the obvious. Be very um, mechanical. Go in, find your verses, make a list, give your references, and just keep moving on. Don't ponder too much on it at first. Just get it on there. Once you've done that, now go back and ask yourself some of the analytical questions that you want to know. The why, the how, the when, the where, the whatever you, the question is that you come up with in your mind. Look at what her instructions have to say, and maybe that will help you develop the correct question then to ask of it. And then what you're going to do is once you have your list, you're going to go back and you're gonna look at your list and you're going to say, okay, based on what is being said right here, what, how does that answer my question? You analyze it in your mind. Remember to remind yourself, do not violate your known doctrines. Keep in mind the context of the book. Always, with, with every verse as you're doing it, I recommend that you put next to it, uh, you know, a J for justification, an S for sanctification, and a G for glorification, so that you can remember each time you make your list which subject is being addressed as you do it. Otherwise, because of the way this book does this weaving thing of everything, and he jumps from one subject to another, just all, and sometimes in one verse, you know, it's almost as bad as Isaiah sometimes, the way Isaiah goes, you know, historically from <laughs> ancient of days to the end of times, and he does it all in one breath. This book does the same thing concerning salvation. He does not distinguish often for you whether he's, which subject matter he's speaking on. He is assuming you understand the difference. He, he is assuming you understand you cannot be saved by your works. He's making that assumption. But he speaks about your salvation and your faith and the result of it being eternal things, the promises that are to come. And it's very easy to slip back into saying that that's how you attain to it. And I don't want you to do that. Okay? Hopefully that'll help you with your homework this week. Okay. So I did do my own little tiny list on that. I did the first two um, sections, Men of Old and Abel. And I am one of the things that I think is going to take some time when you're doing this next week to do your analysis is you are going to maybe have to go back and read some of those storylines to get to refresh your memory if you're not familiar with all of them, right? Um, and so what I did is I, 
in green kind of gave myself either cross-references or background information to remind myself about that storyline, what was pertinent for me being able to draw a correct interpretation. That's where chapter 11 is going to be real time-consuming. You have to, for people who are not as familiar with these old stories, you're going to have to maybe lay some information out for yourself. So, good luck. Should you choose to accept this mission, <laughs> it's not a mission impossible, but it is a big challenge, so I'm glad we have two weeks to do it. Okay. All right, let's get started then on today. What we're going to do today is we're going to lay foundation so that you're ready to move on. We're going to break this down. I put in particular, what we really want to do is we want to look at, at how faith is portrayed through this, and we're going to do it by looking at the paragraphs. So we're going to break down those paragraphs, okay? Um, let's start, though, by going back and looking at context just a little bit. The book theme is what? What is our book theme? Title. Jesus is better than, okay? So he's better. And I just put as a caveat, a better way to God. And actually, it, quite technically, he's the only way to God. <laughs> Right? Because what we saw in the, old, in the old system was as long as that veil remained, it was a, it was a sign for the time that, that the inner tabernacle had been, not been disclosed and they had not been perfected. Because until they had the blood applied, the appropriate blood applied, which was Jesus, not the blood of animals, until that blood was applied, their, their men had not had justification applied to them. They had a temporal covering until the day would come when God would, would do that for them, would bring that seed which was that promised redeemer. Yes. So it had its value. And Romans addresses that. He says, you know, is, is, does that mean then if it was temporal and it was ineffective as far as it was ineffective to actually accomplish propitiation, right? But therefore, was it, was it a bad thing? And what did he say about that? May it never be. That it was, it was good. And it had its purpose. And its purpose was, it was a tutor to lead man to Christ. Right? And it was a temporal thing which also taught man about sin. Who is God? Who is man? How do you approach God? Right? All these truths were taught to them through that system. Okay. Book theme, Jesus is better. In other words, he's a better way to God. And that contrast is with what? Contrasting what? The law, the old covenant of the law. Okay. So segment divisions. Let's look at this chunky pieces. Chapters one to three presents Jesus as who? God the Son. He is God the Son. All right. And in 4 to 7, what do we see? He is who? He is a great high priest. He is the great. I, I like the word the better. The great high priest. And what a contrast that is to that old law. Correct? 8 to 10, what, is, what becomes the major subject there? Covenant is the major subject in chapters 8 to 10. And, he, and there we see he is how better? He is the minister of a, something that's better, a better covenant, right? 
Okay, and now what we have is there's a transition. And I want to go back real quick and look at it. We're going to look in chapter 10, at the closing of 10. In starting in verse 35 to 39, there's kind of a transitional segment here before we enter into chapter 10, and I don't want you to miss it. I love the fact that, that God does this for us sometimes, but it's kind of like he, although we miss it sometimes, it's there to draw you into a new focus. He is just taking us out of how, who Jesus is. He is God the Son. He is the great high priest. He's the minister of a, of a better covenant. And then he says here, therefore, because of all that is true, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Now, I want to ask you, what have you discerned through the various little tidbits that are dropped in here? Why might there be a concern that they would throw away their confidence? What seems to maybe be the problem for this particular audience? Maybe there's persecution going on. And if we go on a timeline and look historically, was there persecution there was and it was and it was very soon to get quite intense right what happens in 70 AD which follows shortly after the writing of this book the temple is actually destroyed what happens to the Christian church and to the Jews for that matter they're dispersed right so Jerusalem is 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 crushed and the temple is completely done away with. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Now, is that not a verse that if you do not distinguish sanctification from justification, that you could say, oh, see, you earn your salvation? Right? So in inductive Bible study, what we always tell ourselves is never violate what? The known doctrines. Never violate your known doctrines. Because if you hold fast to what you know is true about how you get saved, then you would look at that verse and say, oh, that's not what he meant. He's saying here, you have need of endurance so that you may receive what was promised, right? What was promised by the covenant. Well, what are some of the promises? Think of a few of them. Pardon? Eternal life. Well, eternal life. That would be the justification quality, right? And that's justification again, laws on the heart. That's right. That's correct. Okay, well, he's saying you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. So what is he speaking of there? Is he saying you're going to earn your salvation? No, he's talking about the glorification, and he's also talking about another subject which comes up again in chapter 11, which is what? For those who do the will of God, they're, they're looking forward to what? A reward, right. So it actually subtly begins to bring in another subject matter for us to kind of chew on. You can see the switching going on here, yeah. Okay, yes, yes, absolutely. You, if, in fact, you truly are saved, then there, there has to be some kind of proof, evidence in the, in the way that you behave in the things that you are doing. So he says, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For, now here's interesting, for yet 
in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now, this is a very interesting quote. Did anybody go back and look to see where this quote was made and who, who, what the setting was in that? To see who the he that is coming was being speaking of there? Okay, you, you, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it for you guys to research for the next two weeks. Go in there and look for that. It's, it's a quote out of Habakkuk, and I want you to look at that because I want you to get the proper interpretation of 37 to, and 38 there, okay? And he says, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So in other words, you are expected to behave in a certain way and that action then is going to actually have some kind of an effect in the eternal. Is that, would you say that that's what he's saying? Yeah. That there's actually something beyond the salvation of your soul. There's also a, a, a reward or there is a promise of some kind that he's alluding to for the promises of God in their totality. Not just the, individ, not just the salvation, which is, of course, first and foremost. That is justification. But there's also the idea of rewards that are going to be mentioned here in sanctification. I think there's a Good point, Craig. Good point. So, so he's saying that, hey, yes, you have a future reward, but you have a, a present reward, which, As, is, which is, you know, deliverance of your body from... Okay. He bring Okay. And if you're not following him, it's... It, there's a couple of issues here. Number one, you do need to go back and look at the historical context of this particular statement. Who is the he that is coming that he's... It, it's, a, it's, a it, it's kind of a warning statement here, the one that is coming. And he says, and he says about this, he says, um, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith in the preserving of the soul. He's speaking also of the, the idea that God rewards those who are faithful to him. Because we're going to go on now into chapter 11, and he's going to show us people who walked, who, who acted by faith in various ways, and how God preserved them. Some of them, he shows us, preserved them physically. Not all, because some died, but, but there are actually some demonstrations also of, of those who, who he preserved in the physical here and now. And you don't want to miss that part of the information that he's showing. It's, it's a bigger picture than just justification. It's justification, sanctification. It has to do with the eternal things and this present life you're living in. And the two are going to be merged together as he moves forward into chapter 11. And he's going to show how the two both affect one another, but there, and there, but there are benefits for the now and there are benefits for the, the eternal. And both of them are important. Both of them are are blessings that God has in store for those of us who walk by faith, okay? All right, so, so in this transition, he says, but my righteous one 
shall do what? Shall live by faith. Now, that living, you need to determine whether it's speaking about the eternal or the present, or maybe it's speaking of both. Maybe it's speaking about the here and now as well as the eternal. My righteous one shall live right here, right now, by faith. And he shall live by faith. So it, I think it can have a, a, a two-pronged uh, message in that. And this author, that's what he does. He keep, he's like I said, he's like Isaiah. He takes all these things and puts them in one little verse and, he mean, and there's a multitude of possibilities for interpretation. And as long as you dissect your, your, do, your doctrine so that you don't mix them up, you can see application of both things and both are true. It is true that you, you shall live by faith. Right here, right now, folks. We have to live by faith. We have to make right decisions in this life because they matter for eternity and they matter for right now. They have an effect in this world. They have an effect for you personally. They have an effect for those that you are reaching out and touching. But you, and then you can take that to the next level. You shall live by faith. You shall have that eternal living in eternal glory. All right. All right, so now... Transition. I'm just going to give you, that's in 10. It's, uh, st it starts in 30, well, actually, it's, I'm going to put 35. It goes from 35 to 39. So you can see that transition. And now we've come into a new subject, right? What's in 11 to 13 as far as our paragraphs are concerned, our segment divisions here for the book? <coughs> Chapter 11 to 13, what is the major subject going on there? Faith. It has to do with faith. And it has to do with faith in action, right? The activities of what faith are all about. The things that people are to do or not to do, correct? So it's, so it's an application thing. And in that, there's kind of a, um, um, a culmination verse in 12.2. Someone go there and read that for me real quick. Okay, so he is, and now how is he titled there? Since our book on the whole is about who Jesus is, he is the God the Son, he is the great high priest, he's the minister of a better covenant. In, in verse 2 of 12, who is he there? Author and perfecter of faith. Okay, so that's a suggestion for how you might break down the book as far as chunky, looking at the flow of thought in the bigger segments, that he's the son, he's the high priest, he's the better, he's a minister of a better covenant, now he is the author and perfecter of faith. So we now know we have entered into a segment of the book, 11 to 13, that is going to fo focus on the subject of our faith. Okay, so that sets us up contextually to move then into taking a look at chapter 11 and trying to discern um, how we're going to break this book down and how, what we're going to draw out of it. What is the author's purpose in what he says in chapter 11? That's the goal, right? So starting with just key words, that's where you always start. What are our key words that you found in chapter 11? Okay, well, there's the obvious one. Faith, and it has another one that's used, it's just used once, but the word believe. I'm going to add it in there too, just because to me they were, a, they were synonymous with one another. 
Um, Did anybody happen to count how many times they saw the word faith in this chapter? A lot. Do you say you didn't count? (laughs) Yes. 25, okay. And if you add the word believe in there, that would be 26, right? And I actually found 27, but that's close. I mean, there was a lot of the word believe. So what is the conclusion of that for an inductive student? That is the major subject of your chapter. (laughs) It's the most important thing that he is trying to convey at this point in his flow of thought about who Jesus is, that that he is a better way to God. And right now he's saying to us that he is the author and perfecter of faith. Is that better for you? Did Did I get this out of the way? Okay, sorry, that stand gets in the way. Okay, let's move to some other words. Now, beyond belief, it's a little tougher, I think, to find... Uh, uh, keywords in this particular chapter besides faith that are repeated, repeated, repeated a lot. But here's another rule about finding keywords. A keyword not only is a word that is repeated a lot, but it is also a word that if removed from the context, leaves the context of that book uh, devoid of something significantly important about that subject that you're looking at. So, With that in mind, what would be some things about the subject of faith that you see in this book that he seems to bring up, even if he only brings them up once or twice, that they're important? Promise and reward. That's right. I did too. So the promise and the reward. And that's a big subject. If you really build that word of promise and reward, it starts with the fundamental principle of, a, of the promises that God gave us concerning the Son himself, right? But it builds itself up to the bigger picture of the idea of the rewards also that he gives to those who have faith in that promise, right? Have put their faith and trust in it. Um, th- um, what else? Better. I'm sorry. Better. better. Okay. Again, Better. So that one is actually a book, th- a book keyword, and so it comes up here. And I think it's quite significant because of the way the book closes, right? He, he, you know that whenever there's a therefore kind of a summary, that, it, you know, Kay always says, well, what's the therefore, therefore, right? And um, in this one, he doesn't really give a therefore. He says, because, right? So he concludes everything he sa- he's been saying before this, and then he gives you a because statement and tells you why it's all of significance. And in there, he, he uses that one that you just mentioned, Lois, better, that there was something better, right? Okay? Trials that we have to endure in, yeah. Right. And I found 20 examples of miracles and strength and positive, and 23 of them Wow. You actually went more analytical at, at this point than you did even more than you needed to do in this week's homework, but that's good. I mean, you can never get too much out of this chapter. This particular chapter is loaded, and so it has a lot. Okay, I'm going to put that up here, even though I didn't go quite that far. So you're talking about, give me your, oh, okay. Okay. 
so we had examples of faith seen, seen through them acting in strength, and sometimes we see them through enduring and suffering, right? All right, there we go. Another key word, endure. Thank you. Approval. I did too. Very good. You and me are on track together today, Craig. Yes, righteous, righteous and righteousness. And made perfect. Isn't that fun that we now know made perfect is speaking about righteousness in this book? That's cool. Okay. Seen and unseen. Now, that's a contrast. We'll put that over here. I like that. Seen, unseen. Very good. Say it again. You put what? <laughs> right. Yeah. And, it, and, but, and you know what's... Tell me what you see is significant about the idea that they bring this subject up, up about what can be seen and what is not yet seen. Well, faith is all about conviction of things that aren't seen. Very good. And, and seeing the one who is unseen. You said that so well. I, I think I heard a Bible verse about that once <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> That's very good, Susan. <laughs> exactly. Okay. All right. Any others? Okay. Witness and testimony. And that's right there at the beginning. I had that one. I have that one marked on mine as well. Now, you know, you you mentioned the idea of seen and unseen and almost as a contrast. I also saw things not yet seen, but there was another phrase that accompanies that, things that are not seen and things that are what? Things to, well, there's hope, eternal, things to come, okay? That was another phrase that you might want to, unseen, things to come, you might want to put that in there, because that is the unseen that they're hoping for and that they're looking forward to, but yet they are not realized yet, correct? Okay, so here's what I did on mine. I kind of did it this way. The, word, the subject of faith and believing... It's about things to come, yet unseen. Um, well, let me do it this way, about. And then it shows us then in this book concerning the things yet not seen, the things that they're having believe in, that in the result, the result of their faith which faith, is faith a, a sedentary thing or an action thing? Action. It's an action thing. So their faith in action then results in what? Results in what in this book? Pleasing God. Now, take a look at that really hard. Do you, see, do you see the flow there? He's saying that it's faith and believing, and it's about things to come or yet unseen, and it results in what? Pleasing God. Now, 
is this a, is this subject sanctification then or justification? Sanctification. Again, the primary is sanctification. Yes, you start by the establishment of through justification, obviously. But what we're looking at here then are are storylines that demonstrate a person's faith. Doesn't gain them their their salvation. It demonstrates that they have salvation. I know. Hey, you could look at a lot of people's. I mean, there's. Yes. I'm, that's a good point. You know, that would be fun. Like we don't have time for that today, but that would be kind of fun to say, okay, so what is God trying to show us? In putting that particular story in Scripture for us recorded, what are we to learn about that? About him at the end. Yeah. Yes. The way I did this exercise is I, I looked at it as the various people. What, what results or rewards now and what results and rewards later. Okay. Right. Some of them weren't, but Abraham said some of it re- fulfilled, and then some of it yet unfulfilled. Yes. This is why. This is why I bring this up to you guys. That's the only reason I bring this up because this, if you have to constantly set your doctrines before you. What is justification? What is sanctification? And keep in mind, this chapter is not talking about earning salvation. It's talking about demonstrating your faith, right? On the, on the whole, that's what it is. Within there, there are messages about the rewards, and sometimes it's talking about promises to come that have to do with your eternal salvation. But, but a lot of it also is actually challenging us, saying that there is also a reward and a pleasing of God that is in the here and the now. That, that, we, we, that we really, by, by God's design, you know, I think so many people talk about um, the subject of rewards and um, the idea of earning, basically, rewards. People really balk at that almost, as if that is contrary to salvation. And what I'm hoping we're going to be seeing in this is that this... The idea of us doing good deeds in this life, living righteously in this life, is pleasing to God. And it's actually a testimony then that your faith is actually true and genuine. That you're not just giving lip service to God. Jesus speaks of this. There are many who will say unto me, Lord, Lord, and I will say unto them, I knew you not. Right? Because they have a lip service that they say that they know God and that they love God. First John, same thing that we just read earlier. He says, it's the one, he says, the one who says he loves me but is disobedient to my commandments, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. 
You can, you can say you're a Christian and say that you love Jesus and say that you belong to God and that you have eternal life. You can say that, but the reality is going to be seen in your life and what you're doing with it. Where are you pouring your time? What are you doing with your money? How do you treat your fellow neighbor? You know, what are, what are the things that you value? How do you make your moral decisions? Are they based on a world, a world view or a biblical view? Do you understand why you will participate in one group but not in another? Do you, have you really pressed into the maturity of your faith based on doctrinal knowledge of who God is and what his word says is true and good and right? And have you weighed out the fact that you are to live this life in a way that's worthy of your calling but also that pleases God for the, for the value of God blessing you? Blessing you even the, in the here and the now. Will your ministry work be blessed? Well, it will be if it's done in accordance with God's values, but it won't be if you bend to the world and compromise on, on uh, righteousness, basically, then God is not going to bless that. There's going to be consequences for you. So, yes, Lisa. Yes. I, I would take it away, you know, the hall of faith, the heroes of faith, however you want to uh, refer to the chapter, but this is the first time I ever read it with the conviction that I was falling short of what others had pressed in. I love that. See, and to me, that's indication of the Holy Spirit present in you. Because what God does then is he takes the things that we are reading and studying, and this is the whole point and the value to doing this, is that then he can take those deeper truths that you're really looking at and studying carefully and meditating upon, and he can stir up in you a desire to walk more righteously and more holy before him. It's, it's, that's a good testimony. Thank you. Okay, there is a phrase in here that kind of is repeated twice. And I just want to bring it up to you, and I don't know if you noticed it. Um, in verse 2, he starts it. He opens it in 2, and he closes it in 39. Can somebody spot that for me? By faith, men of old did what? Gained approval. And how does he close in 39? They all gained approval through their faith. So there's a phrase in here that's repeated. It's a key phrase, and that is, by faith, uh, men of old gained approval. And, and P.S., by the way, not just men of old, but who else? Us. <laughs> we also, likewise, we gain approval by faith. By faith, men of old gained approval. And I'm just going to put that one verse in here, and I'm going to tell you it's in verse 2, and it's slightly different statement, but it's also in 39. Now, our chapter theme then for chapter 11, having looked at our major words and th this, this theme that we see going on in here, how did you want to title chapter 11? Okay, could be um, gain approval by faith, or by faith you gain approval. Okay, by oh, there you go. I like that. By faith, men will 
gain approval. That's excellent. I like that. And here's, here's way, the way that you're going to check yourself to see whether or not you're kind of on the right track. You go back to your, your segment division. Our segment is about Jesus being the author and perfecter of faith. And in this it says we gain that, we gain that approval by that faith. By faith, men will gain approval. So they fit together well. You're staying within the same subject, and it's supporting it. It's showing you a, a support to it. I did, I did basically something similar. C keep going. Oh, that's a good one. So you focused on the reward of what is to come, which is the country that is to come. And that's really heavily addressed at the, kind of at the close of the book, too. Okay. Well, I just think the Okay, I'll put that on here. I, I think it's a little bit more specific. I mean, it's a little bit, you almost have to know what's going on in the book to, to understand that statement, but still. Okay, that's good. Okay, same idea. Attain, by faith, um, men attain things unseen. Okay. All right, that's another possibility. I, I went with something that's super generic that affects both the here and the future. And I stated it, by faith we please God. Period. By faith we please God. And that's gaining approval, and that, and that covers here, right here, the now quality, and it also can be applied to the future. And so uh, to me, I just tried to incorporate both qualities of that subject. Yes, it does. <laughs> That's why, and, and not ju just the prophecy, but it mixes sanctification and justification points. And it, and it drops them back and forth, even in one sentence sometimes. And, and sometimes one sentence could mean one thing or it could mean the other, and both are true. So it's, it's one of those really complicated chapters, I think, if you're, if you're unfamiliar with your doctrines. But we are familiar, so I'm so thankful for that. By faith, we please God. All right. Or by faith, we gain God's approval. Either one is sufficient. Okay, and that, I did that one from 6, but it could also come out of verse 2. And the word demonstrates kind of nice, although it's not, it's not in the text, but yes, I like that, that they demonstrate their faith. All right, yes. You could, things, w then that would be talking about the promises, so it would be a synonym to the word promises, okay? All right, very good. Okay, now then let's move on. We did it. We, we've come up now with a really good um, 
platform of understanding what's most major in chapter 11. That's the biggest job that you can have when you do an observation of your worksheet. This particular chapter is tough because it's not a lot of key repeated words except for the word faith, which becomes really obvious, right? Faith, 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 like 26, 27 times in there. But these other words are key in that if you remove them, the idea of promises and reward, if you remove that from the text, does it leave it devoid of a lot of its meaning and its emphasis? Absolutely. So you know then that promises and reward are important. The idea of enduring, the idea of righteousness or the word being made perfect, those are all part of it. The witness and the testimony that God gives about you because you were faithful in these things. I love that. That's also significant. They had faith. It's, it's like, uh, What's before the horse or the cart? Yes. Right. So you're just going right back to where we started, and that is you have to dis do you have to dissect the difference of what is being said between justification or sanctification, and you have to put the horse before the cart. The horse is your salvation is by grace through faith and faith alone, right? It's believing God. This is why when Abraham uh, his righteousness is recorded for us in Scripture. It says, and he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It doesn't say he left a land that he, that to, for a land he didn't know, and therefore he was credited as righteous. It does not say that. It says he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So knowing that that is the foundation to faith, that's your doctrine about faith. Faith is by grace it's through simply believing God and believing his promises, believing what he says is true, and believing who he is, that he's capable of doing all these things. And so I love the fact that when he starts the beginning of this unfolding message, he starts with the creation account. Because analytically, if you look at that, this, let's, let's kind of look at that one verse together just for fun before we start in this next segment here. But men of old, um, we see the example of their faith that men of old believed by faith. What did they believe? There were two points that were in verse 3. What did you see? What did they believe? Okay, that the worlds were prepared. How? By the word of God. Now, how does that contrast with what the world teaches? How is the world created in the eyes of the, the, of the mind of an unbeliever? A big bang, maybe, yeah. And something that's gradual and progressive, right? But, but he, here what we're saying is by faith, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, we believe that God spoke and it was created, period, period, okay? And then secondarily, he reinforces this by uh, giving you a detail about it. What does he say about that? Wow. What is seen, look around you, what is seen was not made by things which are visible. So in other words, it didn't even start from a particle of dust. It didn't start from an from a ocean of goo. It didn't start, you know, it didn't start by the, the Big Bang. 
idea. It didn't start with anything. It started with what that which is invisible, God's word. Now that is the foundation upon, upon everything else. Now this is really cool. And this is so important because from here then he says, now this is what faith is. It's believing. Men of all believed the worlds were prepared by the word of God and that what is seen was not made by that which is visible. So interesting. Believers can be deceived. There are believers who are not holding on to this truth yet. We, are we responsible to help them come out of the lies of the world and to b- put their faith and trust in what God has written and recorded for us? Yes. Okay. No, that's exactly right. Well, they did. But here's the thing. Christians come into faith with that which they've been taught by the world. And so now we have to unteach it. We have to convince them that God has told us what is true. And I can tell you that the, the domino effect of what you believe about who God is, who man is, where we came from, why we're here, all those things make a factor in how you make decisions in your life. How you, how you live your life, who you marry, what activities you get involved with, what party you vote for, what, or person you vote for. I mean, all these things matter. And they have to be based on moral understandings, moral truths. And those moral truths begin with believing that God is exactly who he says he is, and that he did exactly what he said he did, right? Now, faith basically it establishes your worldview, what you believe is true about where you came from, why you are here, where you will go after this life. It impacts your faith walk, your relationship with God, your moral values, and your life choices. Okay. So that's one example of where this author starts about faith. It is Pure and simple, you believe that what God says is true. You start from that foundation. You need to retrain your mind to reject what the world says about anything and go to God's word first and say, well, but what does God say about that subject? The world teaches all kinds of liberal um, exceptions to how you can believe and live and what's okay to do or not do and so forth, right? But what does God say about it? That's the moral truth that we need to go back to. So he starts, he opens this chapter by saying to us, men of old gained gained approval by simply believing that God spoke this world into existence. What we see here did not come from something else and become something more, right? And that is a foundation that you cannot violate because it messes with your, by the way, it messes with with the salvation plan later. There are qualities of believing in evolution, for instance, that violates then what God says in his word about where uh, death came from, right? For instance, where did, sin in, where, did sin, where did death come from according to the word of God okay, as a consequence of sin? Was there death in the world prior to Adam and Eve's sin? No, not according to God's record. So if you believe that, and sin's result then was God brought death into the world, correct? But if you believe in the Big Bang, that the world came through an evolutionary process of getting better little progressively, little by little, right? Then there was a lot of death, dying, and disease before man even came on the earth. So you've ruined your 
salvation plan. You've totally gone in opposition to what God says is true about where death came from. Death's purpose is to remind us that we are sinners and that there is a consequence and that death separates us from God. I mean that sin separates us from God, sorry. A lot of the school books are really telling them about evolution and the Big Bang. Yes, of course. They teach it as truth, not as a theory. Right. Okay. So now with that much said, now we're ready to go on and look at how these men of old, each one individually, how they came about proving that their faith gave that their faith gave uh, that God gave approval to them or was pleased by their faith. So let's look at the first uh, paragraph of chapter eleven. We're going to look at verses one to three. And we're going to look at the word of faith and say, and by it, what? In one to three. What do you see in one to three? By faith, what? Okay, we can start right where we, where we were at before. By it, uh, men of old gained approval. Who is the, where is our next uh, subject? Who is it? It's Abel. And concerning Abel, what do we learn about him that he did that proved his faith? By faith what? What did he do? He offered a better sacrifice, and by it, what did God say was true about him? That he was righteous. Now, this is very interesting. Why was he righteous? Because he, because he gave a better, approve, a better sacrifice. What was the sacrifice that, that uh, Abel gave that Cain did not give? He, that's right. It was a blood sacrifice. Had God already established a law of some sort, apparently, right, um, that said they had to have a blood sacrifice for this? And how do you know that by the storyline of that Genesis uh, 4 account? Does anybody kind of remember the storyline? Cain and Abel, they both brought an offering. Abel brought a, a lamb, which is the blood sacrifice. What did Cain bring? He brought, he brought from, the, from the crops of the earth. Which, by the way, the part that kind of complicates people fully understanding this is he was a farmer, and the other was a, was a, was a, a, sure, a, sure, a shepherd. Thank you. The word didn't want to come out. Um, and so it, you kind of can get tangled around, well, they each brought what they had, right? I, but that is not what the story is teaching, is it? I, I think uh, people have to be um, careful. It, he's saying here that not the sacrifice didn't make him righteous. It's the sacrifice demonstrated that he was righteous. That's exactly correct. Now, that was where I'm heading to because before we title this, I don't want to title it that Abel was... Uh, that he pleased God because he brought a sacrifice. That's not what pleased God. It was because he was what? Righteous. God says he was righteous. Now what may, so this is where you, anal, you have to analyze. The analytical qualities are, are, have to be kicked in here. What was it that he did that was right versus what Cain did that was wrong? And how do we know that what Cain did was actually wrong? Yes, he says... There you go. And he said, he said then, he followed, he says, first of all, your countenance will be lifted if you do what's right. So in other words, they knew what was right and what was wrong. 
to bring. They knew it. Secondarily, he says, and he says, what's crouching at his door? Sin. And what must he do? Repent. He must master it or re- what, and therefore repent, right? Re- repent of what you brought to me. Bring what I required. Obey my command in this, my law in this. And if you do what's right, will your countenance not be lifted, right? right. In other words, I'll forgive you. I know you made a mistake here. Not just a mistake. This is a willful act of sin. What was in the heart of Cain then? What was going on with Cain? Why would he bring what was not acceptable? Pride. Pride. I think it's interesting. In this book, we're talking about the way to, into God, right? The way to God. And with, with Cain, what did he want to do? He wanted to approach God how? His own way. He thought he had his own way to approach God, which should have been fine and acceptable. But what is this showing us very early in scriptures about God's plan of salvation? Without the shedding of blood, what? There is no forgiveness of sin. And so he right away early in this follows directly, by the way, after the account of Adam and Eve when they sinned. Now when they sinned, sin entered into the world, what did God do to cover their nakedness? He killed an animal, the shedding of blood. So the shedding of blood began right away with the very first sin. When you come to the next uh, chapter then with Cain and Abel, Cain says, no, I'm not going to bring blood. I'm going to bring the, the work of my hands. So it's my work versus God's work. Do you see it? Already early on, it's a struggle between are we going to do it my way or God's way? So can you see how analyzing then, what you come to realize is it isn't because of what he did, but rather it was the fact that in his heart he was righteous, and what made him righteous was that he bowed his knee to God. God's authority, God's law was right, God's ways were the way that he would, he would um, submit to, what he would submit to. And what he's saying to us then is, um, by faith, Abel was righteous. His faith was believing God and submitting to God. It's really a beautiful story of, of submission to God's way. God's way to approach is by the blood. By it, Abel was righteous. You could say was shown to be righteous, maybe. You what? I just put a little note to myself. He offered a blood sacrifice to just kind of clarify it a little bit. But you can put however you want that helps you. Yeah, I love that. Yes, and that's another subject, but absolutely the idea of, of um, you have to have endurance, and if you do endure, then you'll have an enduring testimony, right? Yeah, and I love the fact that, that God testified about him and still testifies about him. How is God still testifying about him? In the written word that we're studying all these years later, we're still studying about what it is that made him right. Yes, right. But, you know, even Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. I mean, you want to be the living example that others can follow. And by their example, you learn what it is that pleases God. When God himself says of Abel, he was righteous. 
And if there's nothing else you want to do, you want to have God say of you, you are my righteous child, well done, good and faithful servant. Could be, but I think most of all, Cain was rebellious against God's law. There was that rebellion and that pride, and he wanted to do it his way, not God's way. And, and it, at least any one of us want to say, well, maybe he didn't know. Maybe he didn't understand. Maybe the law wasn't clear. No, God says to him. As a matter of fact, God has a very stern conversation with him. If you will do what is right, will your countenance not be lifted? Sin is crouching at your door. You must master it. In other words, are we a victim of sin? It, it, do we fall, are we not, are we, do we have no guilt in it? No, God says you are guilty. It is your choice. If you sin, it's because you do it willfully. It is your choice. And you have the, the same opportunity to also turn away from it, to run or flee from it. And God even gave him an opportunity. If you'll just fix it, go get a goat and come back. Get a lamb and come back. Bring me the blood. And we're all good again. But instead he didn't, did he? What was the end result of Cain? God put a mark on him, and, and all the days of his life, he was separated from God. You know, you talk about how God had a stern conversation with Cain. Mm-hmm. What about Johnny's and John Bray's? I believe they were the ones in, the law, in Moses' time. Mm-hmm. They offered strange fire before the Lord. Oh, yes, yeah. They didn't get a stern conversation. No, they didn't. They got an immediate rebuke on that one, didn't they? And they knew the right thing to do, but then they didn't do it, right? But they thought they could approach God their own way. But, but God has a picture in everything. And when we violate his picture, we're ruining his gospel testimony. And I think this was just another one of those examples of the, the gospel message is that the blood is what atones. It's one of the reasons when we studied Leviticus, where we saw with the, with the um, Hebrew people as they were settling on their land and their, their laws were being established and how they would rule their lives and so forth. And one of the things God did was he says, blood is for the atonement only. If you touch it or, or come into contact with it in any way, you must recognize that and you must cleanse yourself because I want you to understand how holy and righteous a, the blood is. I want you to exalt it in your mind. I want you to set it apart. I want you to understand that the blood is the atonement. And by sanctifying it, by making it a holy article that was only used at the atonement seat, that helped those people come to understand that message, that truth about the gospel. It's awesome. Okay, by it, Abel was righteous then. Okay, now 8 to 10. By faith, what? And what did Abraham do? Yeah, that one was an easy one. Abraham obeyed. Yes, by faith you do it. Now, okay, bringing that one up, Lisa, when God promised us to come into this new covenant through Jesus, he said, I'm going to, to remove what? The heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And so I'm going to place my spirit in you, and when I do that, what's going to happen? What's the Spirit going to do? It's going to cause you to walk in his precepts and his statutes. In other words, it doesn't mean that you will never sin. It does not mean that you will never fail God. It just means that the, that the likelihood is definitely there that you are going to have conviction when you do sin and that for the most part you are going to walk in a way that is honoring to him because you're going to have that Holy Spirit constantly reminding you this is right and this is wrong. And it's the law written on your heart by the Spirit. 
that causes you to do that. By it, Abraham obeyed God. So Abraham, at this point in the storyline, before we get too far into things, he had been called by God out of the land of the Chaldeans, and he was promised a land that he was going to. So he had a, a, uh, a, a promise from God that he was believing in, and by it, he simply obeyed God and he went. That is an amazing story of faith. All right, 11 and 12, we come up with who? By it, Sarah. And what did Sarah do? And she was able to conceive. And why was she able to conceive? What was it that her faith had done for her? What was it she was believing about God? That God was faithful. She considered God faithful. All right, 13 to 16. Amazing. I love it. You know, I wish we had time to go into every one of these stories because they're all of them are beautiful um, storylines. And what when we have, are finished with Hebrews starting next year, we're going to begin to do the prophets and the kings. And in that, we're going to get to do a lot of this. We're going to get to dive into some of these old stories and watch the, the, the walk and the faith of the, those who are before us, the, the Hall of Fame before us. And we're going to get to draw out of those storylines then qualities and, and, and points that we can apply in our life also. So I love those old stories. I love the Old Testament um, pictures that God has given to us, the truths that he's retained and he's kept holy for us to know about. Okay, 13 to 16. Who's in there? All of these. Okay, so all of these, and he's making reference to everything that he's kind of come before at this point, and probably others that are not even mentioned, but all of these did what? They died in faith. Without what? Now, when it says he died in faith, what does that mean? They were enduring in it. They were holding fast to it. Regardless of, of the fact that they hadn't yet seen the reality of what they had been promised, they were still in faith. Enduring to the end. Those who endure to the end are what? Christ's household, right? Are sanctified, exactly. Okay, and they died in faith seeking what? A heavenly country, that's right. So here's that one that you brought up earlier about your, the one that you thought was significant. By it, all these died in faith, seeking a heavenly country. Okay? Thir that's in 13 to 16. 17 to 19. Again, we're back to Abraham. By it, Abraham did what? He did. And he offered his son to God. Why? If, if his, he had a son. The son was given uh, as the promise of that nation that would be built and eventually that the seed would come also, correct? So he was about to do what with that son? Offer him to kill him. And he did that by faith, believing what about God? 
that God could raise him from the dead. So by it, by faith, Abraham believed that God could raise people from the dead. Mm-hmm. Well, I know that there was things like Enoch who had been taken up and, you know, and so forth. So there, were, there was that. Um, I don't know. Yeah, look at Sarah, who conceived a child when she, she and her husband both were beyond the years of even, even being able to. Right, exactly. Right. I think about my own life, in your lives, has there been things that God has asked of you to do that you are thinking, oh my gosh, Lord, I cannot do this, I am not able, or this is just too scary? I, you know, as a young military wife, we moved and moved and moved, and every time we made a move, you know, in the early years, it was terrifying to me. I remember the most terrifying one was when we left America to go to Turkey for the first time. And, you know, Midnight Express had just come out on the movies, <laughs> and I was just terrified. All I could think of was me hanging in a prison and beating my bare feet, you know. And I, did, you know, and I got there and found out what? It was mo- the most wonderful blessing God had ever given me. I got to walk in the land of those places that are biblically recorded and see and touch and experience those biblical, historical, recorded places of Scripture. I mean, that was so powerful in my, my faith walk. It's, it was strengthening to me. And I'm thinking, my fears were silly. And so the same is true. Here we have Abraham. He's about to sacrifice his son. But he had the confidence in him that God could even raise men from the dead. Now, we can take that story and... and uh, Celeste, where you asked the question about, well, had others been raised from the dead? Is there any record of that? No, there is no record of it before that. However, that's right. So, he had to raise him from the dead. And the New Testament records that exactly. But here's the principle about where you don't see something recorded and yet the, it seems like within the text the expectation is there that they understand it. And that's the bottom line. Cain and Abel, we don't see any record of God giving a law saying you have to bring blood. But we saw the demonstration of God giving blood, shedding blood for the, for the parents who sinned in the record that was just before that. And then when he, we see the account with Cain and Abel, we see God challenging Cain and telling him it was sin and that he knew the right thing to do. So when you come to an account where he says he, see, he, was, um, he expected and he knew that God, he trusted and believed that God could raise from the dead, apparently that was something that God had revealed he, that he was capable of doing. He had either seen it or knew of it in some capacity. Even if there's not a record for us, we, we are going on the assumption that he knew that because he drew that conclusion. He said he believed that God could do that. Mm-hmm. 
Well, tell me this, in your, in your life, how is it that God, for you personally, how has God personally helped you get to a place where you trust him in things that are either seem impossible or are fearful to you? There you go. We have either pre- experienced it, either, e- even progressively, he starts sometimes in smaller things and he builds you up little by little so that when the bigger, harder things come, you're ready for them, right? That's how God works. So apparently in his life, somewhere before God has worked with him and shown him and demonstrated that, and or he had heard of it and seen it in the lives of others, that God had done this. So God always reveals himself in you personally, and he gives you demonstration. This is why Hebrews chapter 11 is such a great value to you and I as believers. We get to learn from what God did for them, and that gives us confidence to us ourselves stand out in the present life that we're in right now to do and to walk faithfully with God. That's the whole point to Hebrews 11. He wants to exhort them to be faithful to live according to what they say they believe, and to do so in really powerful ways. And sometimes in these demonstrations, it was in really hard circumstances under persecution. Because remember when we open this, when we go back, when we move back in this, what we see is he has told them that they are to have, have um, what was it in 10? Let me go back and look real quick. He says, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. So he's encouraging them because apparently they're either waning or in danger of waning, right? Of being so fearful that they are either being paralyzed or maybe in some cases, if, the, if faith had not actually had its root in them, of, although they have a knowledge of it, they are in danger of running away from it now because hard things are coming. And, he, and very interesting, that, that passage that follows it where he talks about the one who is coming is coming. It's a warning that there are some hard things coming. And he's saying, you, need, you have need of endurance because he who is coming will come. And you need to not wane back in, to destruction, but you need to pres- persevere into the, into the um, what does he say? You, have to pr- you need to um, have the faith for the preserving of the soul. So it's really an exciting uh, record here that we're looking at in these, this chapter 11 that shows us how to have this faith. And then it goes through person by person through the history of their of their nation how people actually lived that out and what kind of real difficulties that they had to face everyone's life is different not any you know yet we're all the same we all have some kind of difficulty we have diseases we have death we have financial troubles we have marriage issues we have we have um, devastations of various kinds that occur in our life we have earthquakes and hurricanes and homes that are destroyed and um, spouses that are taken away and children that are that die on us or parents that are abusive we have I mean we have all kinds of things that each one of us individually have to face and what this book really does for us is it says you have an anchor it's a hope it's a sure hope 
And, and he's saying, you have need of endurance that you shall then move into that which God has for you, these rewards, these promises that he has for you, both in the future, but also the good life that he has for you the here and now. And he says, you cannot shrink back. You cannot shrink back. All right, so Abraham believed God could raise people from the dead, apparently by either his own experiences or by the experiences of others that he had heard, right, by word of mouth. He knew that God could do this. Okay. Okay. And conviction. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. Yes. Of his old age, exactly. Yes. You had those conversations and what happened happened. Right. And then he was told he was right. to be a father. So and again, very good. And if God told him to go do this, he knew he needed to do this. And God told him that Ish, I mean, I, Isaac was, I mean, Israel was, I mean, whoever, that his son was going to Rain. I mean, right. And, and that the nation would be birthed out of the seed okay. and the son, right? Right. You're right, Margaret. God had already been faithful to Abraham in smaller things progressively through his life, little by little. God had proved himself to be both faithful and true. And so he had conviction and assurance to trust God even in this when God said, give me your son. And he put his son upon that altar and was willing to sacrifice him, believing with full assurance and with full conviction both God is able and that God will because he's already promised it, right? He is able and he will. All right, so I love that. He's able and he will. That's for you and me too. Everything he has promised us, he is not only able to do it, he will do it. If he said it, it is done. It is good as done. When we opened uh, Hebrews chapter 4, the, uh, the very beginning of it, it says these were, this was a plan from before the foundation of the world. It is a plan in God's mind that is accomplished already. And it's also the reason why God has throughout generations said, you must preserve the picture. Do not mess up my picture of salvation. Do not, do not mess up my picture of Christ and his church through uh, polluting marriage, for instance. God has a picture of salvation in that picture, right? Salvation is not to be destroyed. God says of Cain and Abel, Cain, you must bring the right one, the right sacrifice. Don't mess up my story of salvation. It's by the appropriate blood of atonement. All right, let's move on to 20 and 21. How else about faith by faith what? We have three men mentioned, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. There are some qualities that are mentioned that each of them performed. One of them blessed, one of them worshipped, and one of them gave orders, right? But concerning what? Regarding things to come. So by it, these men, they blessed. I'm not going to list their names too long. Blessed, worshipped. And gave orders regarding things to come. 
In other words, they believed those things were going to actually happen. And so, for instance, one of them was Joseph said, take my bones. When you go back to the land God said he's going to take us back to, take my bones with you and bury them there. That's the faith that he had in what God was going to do that he said he would do. He believed him. 23 to 29, we've got Moses, right? And concerning Moses, how was his faith uh, revealed to us here? Okay. He did consider that, and he considered, he considered that it was greater, and then as a result, what was he looking for? Instead of the present, he was looking for something where? In the unseen, in the future, right? So for him, he sought God who is unseen and was looking to the reward of it. He wasn't living in the here and now. But his faith was seen by what he was seeking, basically where his eyes were set, right? And, and what he was looking forward to, believing God for. I think that was amazing. It really is. <laughs> and, and not only Moses, but who else? Moses is who, what? His parents. That one is a real interesting little point. You know, he talks about Moses' parents not fearing the king, right? Apparently, and although the story never tells us these details, we can make an assumption that either God had by vision or by angel or by prophetic utterance from one of their their spiritual leaders, somehow God had informed them that their son that was coming was going to be a special son. And they believed God so much, they put him in a basket, put him on the Nile River, and allowed him to go, to go off basically knowing, huh? Float away, knowing that God was going to preserve his life because he was, a be- he was a beautiful baby or a beautiful child. You know what that means to me? Beautiful in the sight of God. He was, a, he was a redeemer that God had in store, and he had this all planned out. And somehow these parents had insight to that, and they believed God. They believed God so much, they put that baby in the basket and let him go knowing that God was going to preserve his life because he was, the, he was the one who would lead the people out of their bondage. That's pretty neat. They don't give you all those details, do they? They don't tell you anything more. They just say he was a beautiful child and they didn't fear the king. <laughs> but you have to draw out of that the backdrop to what does that mean? What was going on in their mind and why, right? We can only suppose, but there's got to be some story in that. Now, you could put all kinds of things on this one. Um, I mean, there's a lot that's other things that are stated, but I focused on the fact that his, what his faith came out of. It came out of the fact that he was seeking what was unseen and not being tempted to receive the temporal glory and the temporal joys and the temporal rewards of this life. He even put himself in a position where he would would have less and be less and, and be, uh, uh, what did he say in here? Let me go back and look at it. 
No, it's 23, sorry. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So that glory and that position of fame, he just, he resisted that. Choosing rather ill treatment with the people of God rather than the passing pleasures of sin. Because for him, for him, having been revealed to him that he was this redeemer that God was going to use, he understood somehow that he was special. He may not, not have had all the pieces yet of that story, but he understood that God had preserved his life when he shouldn't have, right? He should have been killed with all those other babies that were killed at that time. And so somehow he understood that that was a miraculous thing that God had done. And therefore he chose not to... Moses sought him who is unseen and was looking to the reward. It's hard to write this low in the board. I need to get on my knees to, to do it. Yeah. Okay, 23. Okay, so now let's look at 30 and 31. Maybe I'll go over here. Might be easier. Okay. 30 and 31. We see, we see two people here, Joshua and Rahab. And what do we see about them? About their faith? It's a little tougher. You almost have to draw a kind of an, uh, uh, again, a, a, you have to analyze what the storyline was in your mind. And if you don't know the storyline, you'd have to go back and read it. <laughs> but kind of analyze what you see about them and what did they both do? What did Joshua do when he, he and his men marched around that city? Who had told them to do that? God did. So he was what? Obedient. He, he believed God and he obeyed. So by obedience, his faith was demonstrated. So Joshua, he was obedient. And what about Rahab? What was the rest of the people of that city doing concerning David and his army that was coming? They were terrified of them. They, were gonna, they wanted to kill them, right? But she, on the other hand, she provided for them both a means of escape and also safety, helped them, right? So in doing that, she was honoring God rather than what? Than her, than her own government or her own city. Yeah, she actually had to defy in order to honor God. And boy, is there a message in that one about who do you honor, men or God, right, in the end. That's another whole storyline. So Joshua and Rahab, I just put they obeyed and honor God. I had to come up with my own wording because there was really nothing in the text to help me with it, but... So if you want to do something different, that's just fine. Whatever you want. Okay, the, uh, we're at the very end of this almost, 32 to 38. By faith what? Now we have a very big section again. And it's talking about lots of people here, right? It doesn't give any specific names, right? But by, by it, many did what? They, again, gained approval. But, I love the but, but what, had, what did they not? 
That's right, but they didn't receive what was promised. They gained approval by their faith, by suffering, by enduring, by going through all these hard, I mean, the list in that is pretty gruesome, right? I mean, there's a lot of horrible things that happened in those verses. By it, many gained approval, but did not receive, right? Did not receive what was promised. That's right. So again, actually, you're back to what also what um, uh, Susan mentioned at the very opening. I think it was Susan, somebody, somebody did. That faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, right? So it's an assurance and a conviction that these people had that they endured in these things. So that they gained approval by endurance, you could say, all the way to the end, whether they lived or died, but they endured in their situation, but they did not receive what was promised. Now, then there's a word right at the beginning of 39, which is our, our 40, rather. That should have been 39. Verse 40, and he says, because. Now, this one took me a while. I had to really work this one through because the way this author says it to me in English, is a little complicated. It's, this is what he has done so often in this book, hasn't he? You know, when we look at some of those difficult passages back in 10 and, and 6, we see that just the way he phrases things does not make it super clear in English, you know, exactly what is he trying to say here. So we have to kind of untangle this. Now, if you look at this as a contrast statement or a conclusion statement, they gained their approval by enduring in various ways, but had not received what was promised, because why? Why had they not received what was promised? There you go, because Jesus had not yet come. Now, this is really interesting. The way he says it, though, he says... Um, because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Now, that to me was complicated. So what I had to do was, in my mind is I had to go back to a few other verses. So let me just give you a few things. Let's go back to 4.3. And, and you might want to make yourself a list of these verses as references to go back to to help you lay the foundation for what he's saying here about them not receiving apart from us. Okay? In 4.3 is the verse that talks about uh, the plan of salvation being from, from what time in history? From before. So another, he says, though, he's talking about those who didn't, don't even enter into the rest of God. In other words, they don't get saved. They seem to have come short of it. For indeed, we have had good news preached to us just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united in faith by those who heard. For we who have believed entered the rest. Belief is, faith is, conviction and assurance of things unseen, right? And he says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest because of their disobedience and unbelief. And he says, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. So the first thing we need to understand this author has already established is that there was a work that was finished from the foundation of the world. And it was a, a finished work that would have application for everyone throughout all history, both these men of old and us, right? 
But it was a, and in the mind of God, it was a work finished from before Adam and Eve sinned and before God had to promise them a seed and before he shed the first blood that was the picture of the blood to come. He had a plan already in place. That's in 4.3. Then you move into chapter 9, which we just came out of and we've spent a lot of time, so it should be still pretty fresh for you. In 9.15 to 17, he talks about these promises of this seed that would come, right? And concerning that seed, he talked about Jesus coming as being a new mediator, right, for this new covenant. That was the segment division that we just came out of in 8 to 10, minister of a better covenant. Now, how does that new covenant get implemented according to 15 to 17? By the death of the one who made the promise. Who made the promise? God did. Who died on the cross? God, Jesus, God the Son, who we've already said, he's God the Son. God the Son died. God promised. God died. That, therefore, made us able to be heirs of those promises, right? That's what that put into effect, inaugurated the new covenant and put into effect that we would be able to receive the inheritance of what was promised by a covenant. So now we have Jesus who has died. Jesus is the something better that he's making reference to here in the, at the end of chapter uh, 11. And apart from us, they could not be made perfect, right? It actually says they would not. But he also means they could not. Apart from us, they would not be made perfect. They wouldn't because they couldn't. They couldn't be made perfect because under the law, what did they have? They had a system of bringing animal blood. Did it ever make them perfect? No, we already know, we've learned that. So he's already laid down a foundation for us that, that there was a plan from before the foundation. They had a temporal thing in place of an old covenant that was not, was not sufficient, right? It was weak, it was called in one of the verses, and that it could never make perfect those who approached through that. And as long as the veil remained, they knew that they did not have access to the Father. They had not been made right so that they could enter into the throne. And so what he's, what he's done is laid a foundation previous to this that makes us understand that even men of old, they, did, they weren't made right yet before God. The propitiation had not yet been made that was effectual. There was a temporal shedding of blood that made a covering and that by faith they obeyed that by faith however what were they looking to were they looking to the law to accomplish their salvation what were they looking to the abrahamic covenant and the promise of a seed and who is the seed jesus so what he's saying here in this last verse is that um god had a provision planned God's provision is Jesus, without whom no one would be made perfect. That's really what he's saying. No one would be. And so, apart from us, in other words, until the, the fullness of time came, and that's what he starts chapter Hebrews out, is in these last time he has spoken to us how? In his son. Uh, isn't, that in, isn't that neat? He's really pulling this all together here as we approach the end of this, and he's saying, apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Because what had to come? The seed. And what did the seed have to do? He had to die. Pretty cool. So he says, by it many gained approval by their endurance, but they did not receive what was promised because, and this is how I put it, because God's provision is Jesus without whom no one would be made perfect. Okay? 
that is really what he's saying in there. He says it kind of quirky, and you have to unravel it, and you also have to lay in there your previous teachings about why the law was not sufficient and did not work, and why they should press into what is better, which is Jesus. The something better is Jesus. I'll write it down, because God's provision, he speaks about that provision in that verse, is Jesus. He doesn't say that, but it's what he means, is Jesus. Uh, And then without whom no one would be made perfect. 